That's also called the merry old woman, the mouse of the cupboard, and the rakes of Newcastle West. But we've rechristened the bogman on the door because we have danced that, all of us. And people have stopped in other banks to look around saying, Jesus, they must be off their heads. I remember when I was a young fella coming to this falls, we used to walk it from home, which was about three miles, and we'd cross down the fields in our bare feet to the bog. And at that time, there used to be mehills. People would have mehills, and that would mean that there might be anything up to 10 or 12 people working for the one family of one farmer in the bog. And But now that's all gone. And I noticed in the last few years that it's mostly on a Saturday you'll see people coming to the bogs. There are people, farmers who are working maybe in factories and in jobs and they come here on their day off of a Saturday and they mostly do their work of a Saturday and then you have people coming here in the afternoons after six o'clock they're driving in their cars whereas when I was a young fella there was never a car seen in the bog and there was no tractors at that time people had come in their bicycles and asses and cars and horses and cars and we I remember when we'd be all leaving in the evening at six o'clock there'd be anything up to a hundred people leaving this bog at, uh, during those years, but it's all changed now. Our national consciousness, Daniel Corkery once wrote, is a quaking sod, which is, I suppose, another way of saying you can take the man from the bog, but you can't take the bog from the man. But in fact, in the last couple of years, mainly because of the fuel crisis, the men have been returning to the bogs in considerable numbers. Last week, the turf banks in the Wicklow Mountains were nearly as crowded as the Strand at Brittis with teachers and technicians and bank clerks getting their hand into the old skills of cutting and footing and clamping. It may be, of course, that the good weather lured them out, but certainly the Arabs had a hand in it too. Well, since the, the um, Arabs started charging a bit more for oil, suddenly turf and peat in general has become very much more uh, attractive to everybody. And uh, we have now started the third development programme in the board here, Locally, we're developing 6,000 acres, which will give us about 300,000 tonne more of mill piece in about five years' time for uh, the liberties of the ESB for power generation. This is welcomed very much by the ESB because it's cheaper now to produce electricity from mill piece than it is from oil, very much more. And Lanesborough Station here, mill piece side of it, is the cheapest solid fuel producer of electricity in Western Europe. For some people, of course, the bog is still as much a seasonal ritual as it is an energy resource. An older generation of countrymen are still stripping banks and cutting spits and wheeling barrowfuls in ways that have persisted in spite of the tremendous mechanisation and productivity drives initiated by Board Namona. The industrial exploitation of bogland has been one of the signs of our modernity, but the manual labour at the turf base is part of our tradition. We'll come on here with this line and cut away the chalk. One, one will cut the other will throw it out there and the next man will spread it outside. There's four sides higher for you. But, as I say, the bog has recently attracted a new generation anxious not only to live off the land again, but also intent on renewing contact with a landscape that some feel to be almost their birthright. And yet, once he gets the slan in his hand, the amateur bogman is inclined to become a bit self-conscious. Well, as a Tony at first. That's the first drawback. 
not reared in the bog, or not reared near the bog, not a man who works with his hands normally, so suspect from the word go. But um, the proof is in how much top you bring home. Of course, they laugh at it, they laugh at the shape of it, they laugh at the size of it, they laugh at the quality of it. But uh, if you bring home enough of it, they'll give you grudging respect in the long run. But of course, if the whole thing is based totally on rivalry, everybody, last Saturday week, which was sometime in the middle of May, there were, we could count over about 150 people in this bog. Everybody watches everybody else. Everybody doesn't go. You don't go until the last, you know, you're waiting for a queue. If somebody moves off, then you can say, we can go now because he's gone. Also, people walk around when there's nobody else around, inspecting each other's sods of turf and saying, that's too big, that's too small, it's cut wrong. You know, they haven't did footage yet. It's total... N I, I, my belief is that we're all amateur bog. There's no such thing as a real bogman at all. Ah, no, is, nobody knows is. how to do it. They're all watching each other all the time. There is, there is. Bog, perhaps not surprisingly, is one of the few borrowings in the English language from the Irish, linked with bog, meaning soft. And over the years, the softness of our weather and the softness of our territory have inclined foreigners to remember us and our country, not always indeed with unmitigated pleasure, as bogmen and bogland. But while to the unsympathetic and unschooled eye, one bog is as bad or as good as another, to the spadesman on the mossy banks, there are important, indeed organic, differences. When you come along to start cutting turf, you have to take off the scraw. And in some bogs, you might have to go three feet, and others, you might have only to go two feet. It all depends on the, the particular bog. So when you have the, the scraw cleaned away and you're ready to start cutting, you cut about six or seven sods deep and maybe the width of the bank may be anything from six to eight feet wide. And uh, you cut the, that portion of it, which, and the nature, as you mentioned there, the nature of the turf is brown. And uh, when, when you take off that portion, then you come on and you start with the, what they call the black portion of the turf. And from there down onto the, to the, to the, to the gravel, it's always of a black nature, of a soapy nature, a better quality than uh, the, the top portion. But it often happens too that you could come on a very brittle part of the bog and you, to overcome that you may have to cut two or three sods deep and till you get down onto the good turf again. And from there then down onto the, to the, to the quarry it's really good black turf. In the bog, as in other contexts, black is beautiful. But it's not only the texture of the turf bank that varies. The very composition of the bogs themselves vary considerably. I remember in County Derry, the mountain turf was held in great esteem by chimney corner connoisseurs. Turf as light and tight as a sharpened stone, they said. And in County Clare, they still talk about those same differences between the mountain and the lowland bog. Well, the mountainy bog, uh, the turf in the bog, the uh, mountainy bog is of a different nature to this particular bog here, as you can see. This bog here in Cool Ray is surrounded by good land and uh, compared with the bogs in the mountain, a mountainy bog could cover maybe 20 or 30 or maybe a couple of hundred acres of land or bog. Whereas here there's, uh, well it is a small area and uh, but uh, the turf is much deeper. You could get here in this particular bog maybe 30 sod deep compared with uh, maybe five or six sides in the mountain. And um, it's as much easier to cut, to cut turf in a mountain. It's much uh, 
uh, the turf is much uh, soapier, easier to cut, and it's uh, nearly always cut by a different uh, instrument, a different slant, uh, the slant that's used in this particular bog. Uh, the slant used in the mountainy bog is uh, what they call a wing slant, uh, and it's the breast slant that we use here in the old bogs. If you were to use the wing slant in this bog, you'd be cutting the turf against the grain. So you have to use, you have to cut the turf with the grain. And the grain, as you can see here in this bog, is going lengthways, it's not going down like what it is in the mountain. That's why that it is much easier to cut turf in a mountain. You can dig it out with a wing slant, whereas you have to use the breast slant here. And it's maybe harder work. There is, there is more work involved. You have to use your arms all the time, compared with using your foot on a, with a wing slant. A nice case there of technology responding to geology. Now the solitude and extent of our bugs, their status as wilderness, their melancholy music of curlew and snipe, all this can give the feeling of being on ancient ground. But in fact, peat is the youngest part of our terrain. Like the bonny boy, the mossy banks are still growing. It's hard enough to imagine it on a sunny day when the bees are in the heather and the dry roots are snapping under your feet and the sun's putting a crust on the spread turf. But in fact, this place we think of as a sun trap began in ice and lived on water. About 10,000 years ago, there was the retreat of the ice. That is the end of the most recent glaciation period. And uh, at that time, of course, it left behind a situation in which there was little or no vegetation at low levels in the central plain because uh, the ice had scoured a lot of the uh, soil and had naturally was followed by no green materials at low levels. But then gradually, uh, two things were happening at the same time. You had uh, an invasion of the lake and pool edges in calcareous areas by reed swamp vegetation, much as we have today at the edges of lakes and pools, water lilies, aquatic plants of various kinds, reed, the common reed, phragmites, communist, and so on. At the same time that this was happening at the edges of bodies of open water, uh, we had uh, a, a colonization of the higher ground by subarctic plants, Salix herbaceae, uh, that is the dwarf willow, and there was dwarf birch, much the same as you find today at higher latitudes, that is to say in Norway, Sweden on the open bogland. Bordnamona has been involved for years in surveying the Irish bog, trying to get a reading not only of the geological strata, of the extent and depth of the peat resources blanketing the country, but also charting out a profile of the land that will remain when the machines have done their work. Because reclamation is as much part of the board's enterprise as utilisation. However, Bordnamona was by no means the first group to try to turn our romantic scenery into economic assets. There were various um, native attempts, uh, privately financed, to develop uh, some of the aspects of peat. About 1849, a distillation plant was set up at Kilbury near Thai uh, to carbonize peat and extract chemicals from the, the byproducts. This was technically successful, but there was no market in those days for the fairly sophisticated products that emerged. The only usable product at the time was wax for making 
wax candles, or paraffin wax, rather. Um, in Tehran, near Furban, there was a, a live moss peat industry from the time of the Crimean War, about 1853-56. Uh, and this developed towards the end of the 19th century. And the methods by uh, a subsequent war, the Boer War, had been pretty well mechanized. And in this particular area, the sodpeat industry, the initial experimentation on which our sodpeat industry is based, was carried out in the 1920s. There was a very extraordinary development at Derry Lee near Port Arlington, where in 1860, uh, peat milling and briquetting, in principle, exactly similar to that now carried on by Bournemouna, was initiated by Charles Hodson, uh, whose uh, enterprise lasted about five years and was finally defeated by production costs. He was unable to compete with imported British coal in those days. Over the centuries, of course, the small, individually worked bogs were busy with men for whom the turf meant simply the fire on the hearth. It was the absolute economic necessity. But what we might call the great push into peat was given during the last war. The emergency meant a new immersion in the moss. And the evangelist of this new conversion was de Valera himself. In one of his wartime broadcasts, he addressed a country that was faced with the shortage of imported fuel. Every producer can be assured that every tonne of good quality turf will command a good price and a ready market. I would like to stress the fact that it is essential that the turf be of good quality. Only good quality turf will stand transport over long distances in our weather conditions. Only good quality turf is worth buying. To produce bad turf is simply to waste good labour. But as the fuel dumps piled up in the Phoenix Park, turf itself, paradoxically, came into disrepute among Dubliners. And in some quarters, this feeling still lingers on. I think that um, the blame for the second-class position of peat relative to other fuels in Dublin is due to the fact that it was transported by private enterprise and while it may have left the bog in excellent condition, the fact that it was paid for on a weight basis meant that unscrupulous carriers uh, could add water to it en route, and it reached Dublin in a rather poor condition. It was rather wet, and the unfortunate people who had to buy it during the emergency were paying for a high percentage of water. But this cannot be um, blamed on the producers. Since it was founded in 1946, Bordemona has given a whole new image to the quaking sod. The turf bank gave way to the turf boom. In the post-war era, a revolution took place in the harvesting of peat, a sudden transition on the bog resembling the transition on the land from the scythe to the combine harvester. In fact, the scale of the operation on a midland bog today, with the great harvesting machinery champing and manoeuvring its way over the surface, reminds you inevitably of a Russian steppe busy with combines. The rhythm has changed, the methods have changed, the landscape has changed. It's as if a nostalgic Paul Henry vision suddenly melted and mixed into a hard-edged abstract modern painting. 
where before you had heather and wildlife and honeycombed banks and the unexpected bog holes. Now you have vast horizontal geometric plains, brown linear acres. Where before you had the individual's dream of warmth in winter, now you have productivity targets. The scale of the Bordenamona enterprise is immense. Well, you only see a portion of uh, the railways we uh, actually work on. There's only a portion. We have uh, about uh, 3,000 acres here in this area that we uh, harvest. This is, our, this is our second harvest of this area this week. How many harvests do you get of it in, in the course of a season? Well, a lot depends on the weather. We could get as high as three in a very good week, uh, three harvests in a good week. But usually we lift about well, what do you describe as a harvest now? That is one full operation, that uh, we get a complete harvest off our area. That is from milling, harrowing, bridging and the actual harvest. That is the harvest at the moment now where we're getting it into our uh, railway piles. So those, those long kind of those things like big giant potato pits running down the middle of a bog, those, those are a harvest, is that? Yeah, that's our harvest machine there. Yeah, there, there the, these, are, these are our harrow harrowing ones here. Yeah. This, is, this is actually rails we're preparing at the moment for ridging. They, they are harrowing and we'll be ridging that in about uh, three hours time. Our ridges are going into that. It's as quick as that uh, in the good weather? No, no, it takes about three days. Right. Uh, three days of uh, operation for the milling harrowing. And yeah. The dust, uh, this, is, uh, this is what we live with. <laughs> Nobody likes it. But <laughs> it's where we get our money from. <laughs> It was a dreadful day here on Monday. It was uh, actually like a sandstorm here. Uh -huh. The peat went up about uh, four to five hundred feet in the air. Yes, we have about 40 miles of permanent track and we lift and lay about two miles of track every day for loading to the power station. So it's a continuous enterprise there. Are you permanent railway men or permanent men, permanent way men continuously working, keeping the line okay? And uh, of course, there's the staff then who organise the um, transport of surf to the power station. Uh, we met the foreman actually there. I told him about that fire which you asked about earlier. Uh, he was the transport foreman who looked after the uh, transport to the station. <coughs> the um, Millpeat power station is an annual overhaul. That's why the lines are so quiet at the moment. We've met very few trains. In fact, we only met one, I think. <coughs> Bagger, which cuts the turf and spreads it. The buckets there are cutting into the bank, putting it into a conveyor, passes through a macerator which pulverizes it and mixes it up and forces it out along a plate chain which carries it out about 60 yards and spreads it on the ground. And the disc following behind then cut it into uh, the length, the right length for sod. It's spread out there on the flat after a few weeks, depending on the weather condition, uh, the plough will come along and plough it off the flat and uh, eventually after about another week or ten days of drying it will split that again to dry it even still further and after a few weeks, a few days, depending on the weather conditions, the turning machine will come through it and turning it up for further drying or put it into heaps which the collecting machine, there's one over there, will collect uh, from the ground, transport and the conveyor and form into a rick 
for storage. And then it's a question of loading the delivery to the power station. What kind of percentage of that uh, goes to, say, uh, retail consumer, and what, what percentage would go to, say, the power stations around here? Or does that go to power stations? Uh, well, we cut 120,000 tonnes in the year, and we sell 90 to 100,000 to the ESB, to the power station, and the other 20 to 30,000 to the public. I see. So the majority of the of the heart of Ireland that's been cut out every year is burnt up for electricity. That's right. Yes. Well, that's an impression of just one bog at Mount Dillon in the Midlands. Of course, Bordnamona not only put new machines on the land, it put new heart into the economy and indeed into the people, creating jobs, a sense of purpose, and a thriving environment. And yet, there's something surreal about a bog traversed by supervisors on motorbikes, workmen in railways, and four men on tractors. It's all a far cry from the older ceremony of Slan and Barrow. That annual, slow-paced work involved something like a migration. It took a man out of his normal workaday environment and put him literally into the roots of his landscape. It took him out of himself. There's a special lyricism, not to say laughter, in most people's memories of the experience. Was, uh, the, that was a, the usual thing. And resting at it, resting at the courting and everything. See, now we can be bad others. <laughs> they'd be after one another courting the different side, you know, that'd be it. That try, that I would try to put the portion out of his court. Of his court. <laughs> And if you were getting too much of it, you'd have to go out of it and make some attacks there. Well, I was after the fight there too, and felt inclined to one another. And that was the game that you should be after in Canada. Very often, for sport, you know. And you should have to make a row too. <laughs> so many at the side. They won't want us and it's shattered from the sport of it. All the others, then it's Jane and everyone, it was shattered of it. That was more fun than anything else. It was all for fun to us, you know. It might happen after the dinner, maybe out in the evening before they'd stop, before they'd stop of courting. The work would be, held, be held up in the count of it. Be no worse, but that it be good on. They have a great day. <coughs> great days. Great days indeed. Like the bog itself, people's memories are layered with their experience of it. Even for the scientists surveying the ground, there are moments of surprise. The border was put down, and when it had reached, uh, perhaps 25 feet down, when it had reached the junction between the bog peats and the fen peats, there was a sort of bubbling uh, emission of gas, invisible gas, and uh, somebody uh, in the survey section had the notion of striking a match to this. It lit up, and uh, on one well-authenticated occasion, I remember when some of us in extremely cold weather in the month of January, the vicinity of Terrell's Pass, gathered round the flame in question. Uh, it had to be extinguished at the end of the exercise. What kind of a flame? Is it a blue flame or a, a red? Blue, a blue flame, perhaps 18 inches to 2 feet high. 
gushing powerfully from the bog surface out of open water. I suppose that flame was just a kind of scientifically induced will-o'-the-wisp. But while the bog still retains these elements of surprise, the element we expect to find there and the element it subsists in is, of course, water. The peat acts like a sponge, absorbing many times its own weight in water. And this is not without its hazards. On the blanket bogs on hills, it can happen that too much water logging causes the peat to slip on itself, resulting in a kind of landslide, a black avalanche that's commonly known as a bog burst. One of the most celebrated of these occurred in Kerry, near Killarney in the late 19th century, when a family lost their lives because their house lay in the path of the burst. And people still remember another spectacular occasion of the same phenomenon, near Ballylongford this time. Oh, I had the experience that to let a natural horse belong to one Moriarty, and all that he escaped was a soul that got up in a block of hay and she escaped. All the rest was carried. Oh, and the horse knocked. Only the soul, she escaped. And he came to me along the river. The water driven the blocks of bog before it. Came along this river, he came into Paddy Longford. And went very close and knocked the bridge in the street. And, and there were some of the blocks of bog carried over to the clear coast. And some of it was, some of it was drove up in the field by the road down near Valley Longford. And people cut their foot a bit after that. All that work with spades and hay knives and every kind of a thing like that. And the parish priest came out then breeding over it. And they said that that was a great, a great chance that it was saved, that the stone was saved. He prayed over it and that stopped the, that helped him in the forgotten where the blocks of bog from blocking up the eyes of the bridge. But the surprises the bog springs aren't always disastrous. In fact, it's a particularly benign landscape, one with all kinds of human signatures. Indeed, you could think of the turf bank as a kind of memory bank, an archaeological and historical information retrieval system. If you go around the National Museum in Dublin or the Ulster Museum in Belfast, you'll discover that much of our cherished national heritage was, as the labels on exhibit after exhibit testify, found in a bog. Our past lies embalmed there, and time after time, a slice with a turf spade opens a door into a different world. My involvement in these bogs and in the material that comes out of them started when I was doing my uh, master's degree originally. Um, in the archaeology, in, in the literature, one object which was continually turning up in material and uh, being dismissed were these quadrant stones which turn up. Now, in Balderig and in North Mayo, they turn up in the bogs regularly. And local people had observed that these were quite different from the ones which were uh, in use there 30 years ago. Um, and they call them Brolochony. And when I was doing my master's, I took the quern as the subject of, of my thesis. And I, I saw that this observation, which archaeologists had made, that there was no 
significance to these objects, that they had no significance, whatever, that this was untrue, and that, in fact, the folk observation of differences, and which you could observe that ones coming out of the bog and belonging to an earlier age were quite different from the modern ones, that this held true for the whole country. Well, when I then went on to become an archaeologist, um, one of the problems I became involved in was other structures under the bog. Now, the story of those began over 40 years ago when my father wrote to the museum about them. Uh, he described lines of stone which turned up when the bog was cut away. And uh, the only observation he made on them was that um, whatever they were, stone walls or roads or boundaries, that they must be very ancient because they were earlier than the bog itself. Well, uh, Dr. Hellerty and myself have worked on these now for a number of years. We've excavated Dr. Hellerty at Bonnie Conlon, and I've excavated at two sites on the North Mayo coast, one at um, Behi and the other in my home village of Balderi. And um, quite an amount has come up there. The, the important thing about it is that, and, and the advantage of excavating there, is that you've got bog land there, five, six, up to eight feet of it. But this is lying not like the, not like the um, uh, you know, the lake bogs of the Midlands, the very deep lake bogs which formed in water. This is bog which formed on what was once fertile soil and which was inhabited and as we can now see from the tombs which are there and from the farms which are there. Um, it was farmed land, it was land where you had whole communities living, where you had the fields enclosed, you had the soil tilled there, we've got the uh, traces of the ridges in the soil um, where they had their, their wheat and barley growing. Um, we've got traces of their, the places where they had their animals pinned. We have um, the forest still remains there. This is a feature which most people have seen. Anyone who has ever gone out into the bog has seen this, these crumpons or stumps of trees which, uh, which are there under the bog. Um, well, we can see where these have been burned down. We can see the patches which have been cleared of forest and the patches which have been left where the forest has been left. Some cases possibly even as a shelter belt. And this is interesting interesting results archaeologically coming up out of it, but there are also a lot of results which can apply to the layman. For instance, the uh, the typical Irish landscape, you know the one of the, uh, the west of Ireland landscape, stone-walled fields um, with not the houses clustered together into um, uh, into towns or into small villages, but the scattered pattern of the houses, everyone's house out on their own bit of land. Well, we can now see when we're getting the same pattern underneath the um, underneath the bog that this picture of the Irish landscape goes back at least five thousand years, because these are the type of dates which we're getting for these field systems which we have in the west. They're going back over. Um, uh, well, the radiocarbon dates we're getting suggest a date before 3000 BC. So that the Irish landscape, which you can look at today in the west of Ireland, that is typical of what was there 5,000 years ago. And it's not just typical of it, but it's probably the same, exactly the same fields. Because I'm quite convinced that the fields which were laid down 5,000 years ago, that those are still in use. It's not only the professional archaeologist, of course, who's fascinated with these buried signs of life. Each locality has its own lore, its own special claim to an older past. For example, you'll find wood naturally embedded in the peat almost everywhere, bog oak, pine and yew. It used to make excellent firing and was occasionally used for rafters and houses. But now it's the wood carvers that most covet this organically stained and seasoned timber. Artifacts in bog wood are by now a kind of mini-growth industry. But there are other kinds of wood to be found also, 
wood that was already worked on centuries ago. Oh yes, there has been uh, planks of wood found here in the bogs and the peculiar thing about it is that uh, as you can see those three planks of wood here now they have been found about 10 feet deep in this uh, bank of turf and when the owner came and cut the turf over the planks he removed the planks and he discovered that there was three cuttings or two cuttings one at each end one at each end of the planks and it appears that they have been cut out of the wood by what kind of an instrument we don't know could be done hundreds of maybe thousands of years ago and uh, there's a, a square piece cut out of each of those planks as you can see well i remember years ago when i was a young fella coming to bog here with my father that we also came on what we thought was uh, it looked like a road and it was a, a vein that was going through the whole bog and uh, when people would be cutting the bank of turf they'd come down on this roadway and when the timber used to be moved out I remember seeing big round uh, pieces of wood maybe 12 or 14 feet long maybe five or six inches in circumference and at the end of the plank there'd be a notch cut out and to me it just looked like as if the, the notch was put there for in order that uh, maybe a rope or whatever would be tied around the the, the wood to carry it from one place to another. It looked like as if it may have been, they may have been carried by, pulled by horses or some animals uh, at that time. One of the things which uh, we're now getting in the west of Ireland is a tremendous amount of these uh, Stone Age settlements underneath the bog. And it is possible with, say, taking North Mayo alone, with about 40 settlements now recognised all along that North Mayo coast, it is possible that in future development we may even be able to recognise the um, patterns of communication between these different communities that they may have had. It's almost certain that they had roadways. Now, this shouldn't be mixed with the type of roadways which are associated with bogs in other parts of the country, but this is usually in the Midlands where you get these lake bogs and you get wooden roadways known as tahors built through them. They very often turn up 10... 12 feet deep when people are cutting turf but these were built in existing bogs very often where there is good land all around and a bog intervening where you get in particular in drumlands and you get bogs in the basins in between um, roads had to be built through these and the most uh, the ideal type of road was a wooden roadway and these were built um, in these deep lake bogs uh, and they can go back to Bronze Age times. But we haven't got, uh, I'd emphasize, we haven't got anything like this in the, um, the pre-bog settlements we have in the West yet. But uh, actual roadways or pathways may turn up there. The old roads are signs of life, but you can also discover signs of death. We have nothing as spectacular in Ireland as the mummified sacrificial victims found in Jutland bogs. But we do have a number of megalithic tombs and a number of other hallowed sites on bogland. Gold hoards have been found at times, signs of an old religion associated with the gods and goddesses of the territory. And indeed, this impulse to hallow the ground with gifts still persists, as for example on this windswept mountainside near Fecal in County Clare. When people come here, they, um, they leave something behind them, something that they would have in their pocket. Indeed, somebody left a horseshoe here. I don't know whether it was for a look or 
but, and the coins, there are a lot of coins here. Um, even, the, even the modern coins and the old coins, some old coins, some brooches, even the plug top of a motor car, uh, broken statues, nails, bottles, and uh, somebody even left a little, the top of a bottle as a vase for flowers here and a few flowers in it, and a cross and a rosary beads and buttons galore and screws, a lot of little things that, you know, people may have in their pockets. And um, there's a big medal here, I don't know what it is. A lot of the material which is found in bogs, such as uh, bronzes, uh, in particular a lot of the Iron Age material has come from bogs. A great deal of the ornamental bronze work dating to the Iron Age period has come from bogs. The, the, the most famous being Lisna Crawher. Uh, this is usually described as a crano, but there's a very good chance that it isn't a crano, that in fact it was um, a votive deposit, uh, which is known from many parts of Europe, dating from, from this time. D during the Iron Age, um, it became the custom to deposit intact material, such as ornamental bronze work or other material, but uh, there's a very big difference between this and discarded broken objects or objects which have become obsolete. These are usually intact. Now many of the finds in Ireland which turn up in bogs are intact in perfect condition and were obviously not lost or discarded but seem to have been deliberately placed there. And this tradition of depositing things at a sacred spot or very often the sacred wells which when Christianity came were um, usually attributed to a saint or some story linking them with a saint made them into holy wells and you Christianized them. Uh, this, this thing of leaving deposits continued on and you still get at wells or sometimes at trees uh, you get uh, rags left, hairpins, coins, all of these things are still left there and you see them at many places throughout the country uh, and it seems to be a continuation of this tradition of the boat of deposit which goes back to the Iron Age is certainly pre-Christian and could go back even earlier than the Iron Age. Well the mention of the plug top of a motor car in that catalogue of offerings that we just heard was a sharp reminder of the 20th century encroaching on even the most ancient rites. And in fact for most 20th century people who live away from a bogland area, peat has very little to do with votive offerings or bog bursts or turf baggers. For them, peat's something you buy in bales for the garden. And the production of moss peat is a thriving Irish industry. In fact, Ireland is second only to Russia in the production of this soil conditioner. Moss peat, uh, if you look at a sample of moss peat underneath my, a microscope, uh, you will find that it is a, a sponge-like material. And uh, this is, in fact, uh, the ability it has to hold water. It holds about uh, eight to ten times its anhydrous weight, its solids weight of water, so it has colossal water retaining properties. And as well as this, it retains air in this sponge-like of these, this pore structure. And uh, for this reason, it's a very good soil conditioner. It's, it's uh, people dig it into gardens and lawns, and it's used uh, in rose beds and this, this sort of usage. As well as this, we make up our compost range from our moss peat. And here we add uh, a blend of fertilizers, 12 uh, fertilizer nutrients altogether, and uh, 
These range from NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, down to the trace elements, uh, boron, molybdenum, iron, copper and zinc. Inevitably, I suppose, one has mixed feelings about the successful industrial utilisation of our bogland. At the moment, a new development scheme is well underway and more bogs have been purchased and opened for operation. It's an awesome experience to stand and watch a machine cutter, or bagger as they call them in Bordnamona, masticating a turf base with jaws that are eight feet deep and laying out a 60-yard swathe of sod peat behind it. Relentlessly and efficiently and suddenly, the slow centuries of geological and botanical process are cancelled. Process yields to progress. The scenery dies, a habitat for all kinds of wildlife perishes. And yet, the people at Bordenamona have a vision of renewal. When the old mask of the bog is stripped off, a new face of Ireland is revealed. Land reclamation is implicit in bog exploitation. The reclamation of bogland is well underway and we have many trial areas from grass supporting sheep and cattle and producing grass which will support them on or off the ground. There has been, I believe, a very fine return in terms of live weight gain for both cattle and sheep on grass on the cutaway bog following sod machine feed cutting. Uh, also, in one area, at least following milling, there has been a, uh, a fairly uh, good result. This is, we are still in the very early stages of this one. But uh, I think there can be no doubt by now that it is not so much a question of what can be grown on the bog after cutting or on the floor, that is on the fen or forest, which preceded the bog, in other words, in the cutaway or milled over area, it is a question of which of the many crops that can be grown should be grown. The old bog road may be a path back into a quagmire of sentiment or the high road into a future of efficient land utilisation. But however we think of it, the bog is one of our central resources, economically, archaeologically, perhaps even emotionally. After all, what in other countries might be called the Midland Plain or the Central Lowlands is called with us the Bog of Allen. And I remember in my first geography lesson being taught that Ireland was like a saucer, a wet centre surrounded by a dry rim of hills. And that vision has always retained a mysterious attraction. The bog is our outback, the outback of our landscape, the outback of our memories. It came as no surprise to me indeed to be told that in Russian, the word bog exists also, but in Russian it means God. <laughs> 